You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 4. And when we have found our place, let's bow together in prayer before we begin. Our Lord, we come now to your word, and it is with great confidence that we come to your word because we know that it is true, it is pure altogether. By your word we are warned, and by your word we know you. We know ourselves better than we ever could without it. And we know that you show us not only the depths of our own hearts, but also the glories of who you are. And we pray, Lord, today as we look at your word, that you would match and meet the needs of our hearts with what is here contained in the text that we would be conformed and transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, that you would make us like him, and that you would use your word to do that. We pray for your help today in reading your word and understanding your word and the grace to apply and live your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, they say that everybody likes a happy ending, and I don't know if it's true that everybody likes a happy ending. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily disappointed in sad endings as long as they're not bad endings, because sad endings and bad endings are two totally different things. An ending can be sad and not be bad, and an ending can be happy and still be a bad ending to a movie or a book or a a television show or something like that. And maybe that's why going to high school and going through high school, I was one of the few kids in, in my entire class that enjoyed Shakespeare. I liked Shakespeare because Shakespeare always had good endings, even if they were sad endings. Rather than kissing and riding off into the sunset on horses, both Romeo and Juliet die. Now, that's a good story. <laughs> I thought that was a good story. Nobody else in the class thought that was a good story. I thought that was the makings for a masterpiece, and it was a masterpiece. It was a realistic ending. It was an enjoyable ending, though it was a sad ending, and I don't mind tragedies. But I know that everybody's not like that. If it were, everybody would enjoy Shakespeare as much as I enjoy Shakespeare, but not everybody does. So I guess it's safe to say that most everybody likes a happy ending. And so when we come to the end of Jesus' time in Samaria, we are probably excited or at least encouraged and our hearts are warmed when we read in verse 39 in our text that is before us, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and they stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And that's the end, and that wraps up the Samaritan ministry of Jesus to the woman and in Sychar with the villagers, and that is the ending of the story. And beginning in verse 43, we sort of leave Samaria, and we leave that in the rearview mirror, as it were, and we go up into Galilee with Jesus And it is in verses 39 through 42 that we find out what is it that became of Jesus' time in Samaria. What was the fruits? What were the results of Jesus' encounter with that woman at the well? Now, I want you to remember as we look at these verses that the scope of this whole passage has increased as we've gone on through it. It started off with just Jesus alone at the well. 
Then came the woman, and it was Jesus and the woman. Then the woman left, and along came the disciples, and it was Jesus and the disciples. And now Jesus and the disciples are there, and now all of the people from the town are showing up at the well. So this, what started off as just Jesus at the well has grown and grown and grown, and now we have an entire city that gets sort of brought into this conversation in this one encounter with Jesus and the woman. And so we might ask ourselves, what then were the results? What was the fruit of that one encounter with Jesus and the woman? And we get it in verses 39 through 42. So as we look at these verses, and this is the last that we're going to sort of be dealing with the Samaritan ministry, taking us 18 sermons to sort of work our way through this time in Samaria and the well and all the people that associated with it. And as we do that this morning, I want you to just sort of observe a couple of things about the text in general, just some things about the verses in general. Now, before we get into any of the specifics, first, you and I notice that one of the central aspects of this whole concluding statement in verses 39 to 42, one of the central themes is that of belief. You see it mentioned three times. In verse 39, it says that many of the Samaritans believed. In verse 41, many more believed because of his word. Then in verse 42, they say it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. And the central theme is belief. These Samaritan people from the village of Sychar now have arrived at a personal belief of their own. The second thing that you'll notice is that the whole passage sort of divides really neatly into sort of two, I don't know if you call it two stages or two scenes or two ideas. The first is in verses 39 and 40, where they have sort of a curious, seeking, very impersonal belief. It's based upon the testimony of the woman. But after Jesus spent two days in Samaria, that curious, seeking, impersonal belief becomes a confessing, settled, personal belief in Jesus, based not upon the testimony of another, but upon what they saw and what they heard. So we have sort of two, I don't know if it's two stages of belief. I've really been wrestling with this all week long, and even this morning, not even sure how I'm going to present this, to be honest with you, because I'm not sure if what they had in the beginning was genuine saving faith that sort of grew and became more robust, or if what they had in the beginning was not a genuine saving faith, but merely an intellectual belief, like we see expressed in John chapter 2, that then became a very personal faith and a very personal trust in Jesus. So in order to just not make this clear at all. Let's just divide it up into two sort of sections. At first, they have what I would call a curious, seeking, impersonal faith in verses 39 and 40. A curious, seeking, but impersonal faith. Their faith was was rested upon and was grounded upon the testimony of the woman. You see it in verse 39. Many of the people believed because of the testimony of the woman. Now, was that a saving belief? A saving belief. Or was it the type of belief that's described at the end of John chapter 2 that we looked at, a belief that was merely an intellectual assent to the truth, a merely an intellectual assent to facts about Jesus and his Messiahship, but not the type of faith that justifies one before God? Now, J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, was somewhat helpful, but not altogether helpful. And J.C. Ryle said this, about the exact nature of the belief mentioned here and in the 44th Verse 41, we have no materials for forming an opinion. Whether it was only an intellectual belief that Christ was the Messiah, or whether it was that true faith of the heart which justifies a sinner before God, we are left to conjecture. The more probable opinion, this is J.C. Ryle's position, the more probable opinion appears to be that it was faith, though very weak and unintelligent like that of the apostles themselves. End quote. 
Now you may be saying, is it possible to have a faith that doesn't save you? And the answer is yes, it is possible to have a faith that doesn't save you. In fact, we saw this back at the end of John chapter 2, after the cleansing of the temple and after Jesus' statement there. Turn back to John chapter 2. It says in verse 23, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, and many believed on his name, observing his signs which he was doing. They saw the works that he was doing, the miracles he was performing, and they believed based upon the miracles. Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. So though they believed on Jesus, Jesus did not, and it's the same word used, did not believe on them as it were. They were entrusting themselves to him, but because of the signs. They saw the signs and the miracles. They gave intellectual assent. They believed on his name, as it were, after a fashion. But it says Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now, if those were genuine converts, then John would never have said that. He would never have said Jesus did not commit himself to them. Because when somebody believes with genuine, God-wrought, spirit-created, saving faith, the Savior does entrust himself to them, does commit himself to them, and he saves them and he keeps them but not these in Jerusalem in John chapter 2. And when we went through that, I explained to you all the ramifications of that. Is it possible that this belief in John chapter 4 with the Samaritans, who believe based upon the woman's testimony, that they give intellectual, mental assent to the facts without really reaching out and embracing him in saving faith? I think that it is entirely possible that that is the type of faith that they had. It was based upon the testimony of the woman. She came into the town and said, come see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. Now that, I think, is a very minimalistic approach to the Savior, a very minimalistic understanding of who Christ is and what he did. But it was, at that time, basically all that the woman knew that she could testify to. I just met somebody who told me my whole moral past. I just met somebody who told me everything I've ever done. And if I were to sit down with this person, he would be able to go through all of my sins from first to last. He knows me like nobody else has ever known me. He sees right into the recesses of my heart. You have to come and meet him. Now, not a real robust understanding of salvation, not a real robust understanding of who Jesus is, but of all that Jesus said to her that day at the well, what was it that stood out most? It was when Jesus said, you're right, five husbands you don't have, or one husband you don't have, five husbands you've had, and the one you now have is not your own. It was that statement, that insight into her heart, which just blew her away. Here she had met somebody who knew her. And she went in and she told this to the people in the village, and the people in the village would have said, you know what, she is convinced that she met somebody out at the well who knows her and her whole moral history and her heart and who she is and is able to tell her everything she's ever done. And when they came out there, they came out to the city, they out of the city to the well, they saw Jesus there, and many of them believed based upon what she said. It wasn't a personal belief, it was an impersonal belief. They were believing based upon the testimony of the woman, somebody else, but not their own knowledge of Christ. And they believed on him based upon her testimony that Jesus had told her everything she had ever done. And so verse 40 says, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay out there or stay with them for a little while. Now I ask the question, in my own mind as I'm reading through this, why is it that the people of the city believed her word? Why would they believe her word? In that culture, particularly in that context, in that culture, women were not considered reliable witnesses to anything, especially in issues of legal practice, the law, and in religion. And not only was she a woman and had that going against her, wasn't even allowed to testify in a court of law because that's how they viewed women. We went through that several weeks ago and explained why, as Christians, we don't believe that. So just in case any of you think I'm sexist, we, I'm on tape of saying I don't believe this. But their view of women was that women were not allowed to testify in court because they were unreliable witnesses. Furthermore, she's an immoral woman. 
an immoral woman who has a sordid moral history and a sordid moral past. She was an outcast from her society, which is why she's at that well at noon. Why then, when she comes into the city, are the people willing to believe on Jesus based upon her testimony? What was it about her testimony that made such an impact upon them that in spite of the fact that she was a woman, in spite of the fact that she had the moral history that she did, and in spite of the fact that she was an outcast and considered up to that moment unreliable, the people would believe on Jesus as a result of her testimony? Why is that? Now, I may be completely off the reservation for even asking this because in all of my reading and all the commentaries and everything I get my hands on about this passage this week, nobody even raised this question, let alone bothered to answer it. So I'm going to jump in here where angels fear to tread, and I'm going to offer to you a suggestion or at least a a possible answer to this. I think in one sense we could say there's a naturalistic explanation for this, a natural one. Is it not possible that this woman came into the city so transformed, so convinced, so passionate about what she had just seen and what she had just experienced, the forgiveness, the living water, the regeneration, she was so committed to that and so passionate about it that the people were willing to give her a hearing. I went to high school with guys that are now saved that I would have said to them back in high school, no no way will you ever be saved. And even now I look at some of them and I say, you're saved? They look at me and they say, you're a pastor? And you're saved too? Is it not possible that the transforming power of the gospel, the transforming power of regeneration, wrought such a work in that woman that when she got back into the city, everybody could see instantly something is different about her? She's not the same as she was? I think that's possible. That's a natural explanation. But on the other hand, there is also a supernatural explanation because we find out in John chapter 3, which we already went through, and we'll find out in John chapter 6, that if genuine regeneration happens, listen, the Spirit of God is involved in that work. If genuine regeneration happens, then the Spirit of God is involved in that work. So in one sense, we look at it and we say, why would, it's unbelievable, almost almost unacceptable that somebody with with such an unreliable uh, unreliable character and unreliable status would be suddenly relied upon and believed. And yet then we transition, we say, but when the Spirit of God is involved in the mix and He is bringing people to faith in Christ, when the Spirit of God is doing a work, oh, then all of a sudden it makes sense, doesn't it? That the Spirit of God would use the testimony of this woman to testify to Christ. Do you notice, by the way, it's not an eloquent testimony, it's not a real well-informed testimony, it's not a robust testimony, she doesn't give him any sort of elaborate explanation of the messianic credentials of Jesus from the Old Testament. What does she say? Basically, the only thing that she really knew at the time, I just met a man who told me everything I've ever done. And yet, with that humble means and with that simple statement, the Spirit of God used that to bring the villagers out there and then to eventually bring them to faith in Christ himself. So verse 40 says, The Samaritans came to Jesus and they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. They came out to the well to see for themselves, a seeking curiosity. And then they requested of him, would you stay here? Stay with us. Now, why were they asking him to stay with them? I think possibly there may have been some mixed motives, a couple of things going on here. I think there were probably some in the crowd who were genuinely saved, genuinely converted, and now the one thing that they want to do, and if I were the woman or if I were anybody who got saved that day, the one thing I would want to do is spend more time with my Lord. That is the natural expression of the child of God. When you get saved, you want to be with the Lord. You want to spend time with Christ. You want to learn from Him. You want to be around Him. You want to feel His presence. You want to feel His nearness and His closeness. That's the natural expression of the child of God. So it's natural that if somebody got saved there, they would say, would you stay here with us? We want to spend some time with you. They want to hear Him teach. They want to get to know Him more. 
That, by the way, is why wanting to be with Christians and why being with Christians is one of the marks of genuinely being saved. The heart's cry of a believer is to spend time with Jesus Christ. But we can't do that physically here. But you know what we can do? We can spend time with those who are His, who are being transformed into His likeness day by day and being transformed from conformed to His image from one level of glory to another. We can spend time with those people. Can't? That's the next best thing. I can't spend time with Christ. But if you are like Christ, then spending time with you is the next best thing. That's why God's people love to get together and they love to fellowship and worship and serve together and spend time with one another. It's because the heart's cry of a believer is to be with Christ. But there may have been people there from the village, not just who wanted to be with him because they, he is their newfound Lord and it's the natural expression of their heart to be with him, but likely there were some there who just wanted more time to decide for themselves. They are believing based upon the testimony of the woman but I don't think it is a settled, confessing conviction just yet. And they want to know for certain. They want to hear him speak for themselves, for himself. Hear him speak and lay eyes on him and spend time with him and find out, is this the Christ? She had simply raised the issue. I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the one? Could this be the Christ? Well, they want to decide for themselves. Will you stay with us? And so he stayed with them for two days. Two days. This is one of those silences in Scripture where I wish the author had given us a little bit of information, don't you? Because there's something in me that's curious. I want to know, what did Jesus do during those two days? Did he have the living water discussion with other people in the village, or was that just unique to the woman? What did the disciples do during those two days? Growing up with the, in the cultural environment in which they did, having all of the, um, what would you call it, the taboos against being with Samaritans and drinking out of Samaritan vessels and sleeping in a Samaritan's bed and staying in a Samaritan city and eating Samaritan food and all the stuff that went with it, that would have been, I think, for the disciples, two very uncomfortable days. But for Jesus, it was a very natural time. So where did he go and with whom did he stay and how many people did he meet? And John doesn't even bother to give us the details of exactly how many people believed. But though we don't know what Jesus did or what Jesus said during those two days, we do know the outcome of his time in Samaria. And that's where we move from a, a seeking, curious, impersonal faith to what became for the Samaritans a convinced and confessing, settled, personal faith in Jesus. Look at verse 41. Many more believed because of his word. Now, I love that statement. Many more believed because of his word. There were a number who believed because of the woman's testimony. But when Jesus stayed with them for two days, many more believed because of his word. There were some who came to faith in Christ based upon what the woman said, and there are some who came to faith in Christ based upon what Christ said. And during those two days, there were many more in that village who believed because of Jesus' word. Now, this whole theme, this whole idea of believing his word is one that's going to be all the way through the end of chapter 4. It goes into chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way through there. This whole theme John is about to develop, and this is the first mention of it in John's Gospel. This whole theme of believing the word of Jesus is going to become a central theme in the next several chapters. And I'm just going to introduce it here for just a moment because I want you to see how John begins to weave this idea of believing the testimony of Jesus. The central issue that you and I have to face as sinners is this question. Is Jesus Christ reliable? Can I believe what he has said? It's what every person has to decide. Am I willing to believe and trust what he has said. Not what he has done, but what he has said. Can I rely upon his word? When Jesus says that he is the truth, 
and that all that he speaks is truth, and that he bears witness to the truth, and he came to testify to the truth, and that everything that the Father has said is true, and everything Jesus says is from the Father, and thus it is true, the central question that everybody in this gospel is going to have to answer is this. Can we trust him? Should we trust him? Is he bearing testimony to the truth? Is what Jesus says true? If he is the truth, then his words must be believed, they must be obeyed, and they must be received as truth. Now, this is not the first time that the reliability of Jesus has come up in John's gospel. And you were just a couple of moments back in John chapter 2. Turn back to the end of chapter 2 again. In verse 22, this comes on the heels of him cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. And he said to them, destroy this temple in the three days I will raise it up. And they said it's taken 46 days to, or 46 years to build this temple and you're raised up in three days. But then John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. There we have the disciples believing later on the word that Jesus had spoken. Now look down in chapter 4, verse 50. This happens after our text this morning. When he gets up into Cana of Galilee, there's a nobleman who comes to him from Capernaum and wants his son healed, asks Jesus to heal his son. Look at verse 50. Then Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Look at that. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. That's the central issue. Can he be believed? Can we trust him? Look over at John chapter 5, verse 24, because this theme is developed all the way through chapter 5, all the way into chapter 10, actually. 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And look at verse 46 of chapter 5. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. And he who comes to me will not perish, John chapter 8. But you must believe the things that I spoke and I speak and my testimony is true. But you will not believe me. This is the central issue from now all the way through the rest of the gospel. Is Jesus Christ trustworthy? And if he is trustworthy, then you are implored and commanded to place your faith in him and to rely upon him and trust him. Can he be believed? Well, in John chapter 4 in Samaria, they came to Jesus and many more believed because of his word. Not based upon the word of the woman, but based upon the word of Christ. They trusted him. And see, here's where their faith, which was impersonal before, becomes very personal. You recognize that there is a problem. If somebody comes up to you and says, and you ask them, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? And they say, well, yeah, of course I'm a Christian because my best friend told me that Jesus is the Messiah. So I believe him. Or if somebody says to you, well, of course I'm a believer. My parents were believers and they told me that Jesus was the Messiah. So I'm a believer in Jesus because my parents said so. You would, you would recognize, I hope instantly, that you have a problem on your hands, right? Somebody is believing based upon something I think that is entirely illegitimate, and that's solely upon the testimony of another. But they come to, they come to the woman after Jesus has been with them for two days, and look at verse 42. They were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We believe, and it used to be because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. At first, they believed because of the testimony of the woman. But after two days with Jesus, now they've come to the point where they said, I know personally, not based upon anything that anybody else has said, but because I have personally experienced and seen it and heard it. Faith is not saving faith. And faith is not genuine faith until it is a personal faith. 
And it's not based upon the testimony of others, but a personal knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ. That is saving faith. This is where I think their belief, intellectual, turned to belief. I am convinced now, and these people got saved, many more believed, genuine, heartfelt conviction, because they heard his word and they believed based upon the word of Jesus and not upon the word of the woman. Now, their confession is an interesting one. We've seen for ourselves and know that this one is the Christ, the Savior of the world. What does it mean that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Does that mean that everybody who has ever lived, that the whole world is going to be saved? Is that what that means? Because we read phrases like this. In fact, the, the only other place that this is used is also by John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, where John says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Behold the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who takes away the sin of the world. Does that mean that all people's sin is going to be taken away? That all people's sin is going to be removed, and, and everybody's going to be imputed the righteousness of Christ? When we read in Scripture that He is the Savior of the world, does that mean that all men will be saved? Because a universalist loves to take passages like this and say, see, everybody's going to be saved. He's the Savior of the whole world. Nobody's going to be lost. Is that what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And if not, in what sense should we take this? I would suggest to you that not all people are going to be saved. And to take this verse to mean that is to take this verse in a way that would contradict everything John's been saying all the way through the gospel. It is to as many as received him that he gave the power to become sons of God. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. There are some who are going to perish. There are some who are judged already because they love darkness more than light and they will not come to the Savior because of their love for darkness and because they hate the light. And it is he who believes in the Son who has eternal life, but he who does not believe the wrath of God abides on him, chapter 3, verse 36. And even in chapter 4, it's those who receive the living water that have eternal life and are saved. By the way, what does it mean to believe? And why would I want to believe if everybody's going to be saved to begin with? If all people are going to be saved, then what, why their necessity to believe? And what is it that we're being saved from if some aren't going to perish? If there's no danger that anybody are going to perish, then what's the whole point of salvation? What am I actually saved from? So in what sense is Jesus the Savior of the world? Let me give you two words. An inclusive, there's an inclusive element to this and an exclusive element to this. Let me deal with the exclusive element first. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and by that there, there is an a, a element of exclusivity. For the whole world, there is only one Savior, one way. One name under heaven whereby we must be saved. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One Savior, one reconciler, one way to peace with God and reconciliation with God. There is no other Savior for the world. Muslims don't have their own Savior, and Buddhists their Savior, and Hindus their Savior, and Jews their Savior. Jesus is the one Savior exclusively for the whole world. So He is the Savior of the world in the sense that exclusively He is the only Savior offered to the whole world. But then there is an inclusive element in this as well. And by inclusive, I don't mean that God saves all men. I mean inclusively in the sense that the salvation that is offered in Christ is not restricted to only Jews. He is the Savior of the whole world in the sense that He is the Savior for Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles and all nations. And that that one Savior exclusively is offered legitimately to all peoples. 
not just to the Jews. See, the Jews and their thinking of the Messiah, their idea of the Messiah was that when the Messiah came back, he was going to work to save Jews. And that Samaritans and Gentiles and all of the nations of the world and all of the peoples of the world were merely kindling for the fires of hell. That was the Jewish idea. Only Jews would be saved. The Samaritans now have come to the point of understanding that this Savior, though coming through the Jews, is a Savior for the Jews, but also for the entire world. That is, it is inclusive to all nations and all peoples. Not all men without exception will be saved, but all men without distinction will be saved. It has nothing to do with your race or ethnicity or your background or the nation from which you come or your lineage or anything like that. He is the Savior of the world in that sense that He is offered to the whole world. He is the only Savior for the world. And if any from the world will be saved, they must come through Jesus Christ. And that any can. Any man who does repent and trust Christ will be saved, regardless of your background or your ethnicity. And in that way, He is the Savior of the whole world. Does that make sense? Not that all men will be saved, but all men can be saved. And this salvation is offered legitimately to the entire world. Jesus said in John chapter 8, and we read it at the beginning, I'm the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Speaking of the Jews, I have other sheep that are not part of this fold, and I must gather them in as well. John chapter 11, speaking of the death of Christ, John makes the statement that the death of Christ would not be for the nation only, but that he might gather together the children of God spread abroad through all the nations. This is the this is the continuing concern of John throughout his gospel, that this salvation that came to the Jews, through the Jews, is available to all men, without distinction. The floodgates of grace are opened up, and anybody can come in. And in that way, he is the Savior of the whole world. And that is why John includes this whole discussion about what happened with the woman at the well. It is evidence, and it is proof positive, that this salvation, though coming to his own people, the Jews, was also available even during the time of Jesus to anybody who would repent and trust him, be they Jew or be they Gentile. They could trust in Jesus Christ and he would forgive their sins and he would save them. Now, we kind of understand all the details of the concluding statement here about John chapter 4. And as we leave Samaria, as it were, in our rearview mirror and kind of begin to go up into Galilee with Jesus, I want to just close with a couple of observations about this whole text, all of John chapter 4 and all of the verses that we've looked at thus far. This whole encounter in John 4 with the woman at the well later on with the nobleman's son at the end of chapter 4 is a high water mark. As we leave Samaria, we're leaving a, a, on a positive note, a high note in John's gospel. And what is the high note? It's belief that these people believed. Now, if you were reading John 1, 2, 3, and 4 for the very first time, and I don't know if you can even remember back when you read it for the very first time, or even if you've read it for the very first time, but if you were reading this for the very first time, you would get to John chapter 4 and you wouldn't expect belief to be the response. You might rightly expect unbelief to be the response because in John chapter 1, it says he came into his own and his own did not receive him. And apart from the disciples in chapter 1, the, the overarching story of the first three chapters has been rejection and hostility and unbelief. He came into his own and his own didn't receive him. He came to the temple. They didn't recognize him. He came to the temple and he cleansed it out and they rejected him. What about Nicodemus, a high-ranking Pharisee? Did he believe? No record of that. He laid the gospel out in front of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, at least as far as we know, walked away an unbeliever. And even chapter 4 begins with a note of hostility. Jesus, when he, when he knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and went up into Samaria on his way to Galilee. Why? To avoid the hostility 
of the Jews that were in the southern part of the region who were heard that this movement was growing. So even chapter 4 begins with a note of hostility. And then we read of this woman, we think of all the people in the world, a Samaritan woman, an immoral woman, locked in sin like this, an outcast from the society, she'll never believe. And then we get to the end, and we're not only surprised to find out that the woman believed, but that the whole city believed. Then we get down to chapter 5, and, or the beginning, end of chapter 4, and we see the nobleman's son, who's going to, or the nobleman, who's going to believe, based upon the sign, a little bit later on in this chapter. And we end chapter 4, and we say, wow, wow, this is a high watermark. This is positive. Things are turning around. What started off as rejection and hostility and unbelief and hardness of heart and impenitence, now starting to, we're starting to turn a corner, aren't we? We have a whole village that's come to Christ now. Maybe this is going to be the beginning of a new movement. Maybe from now on in the Gospel of John, what we're going to see is belief and receiving Him, and the whole nation's going to turn. After all, Samaria has turned. Maybe the Jews will see that, and they will come to faith in their Messiah and accept Him. We get into chapter 5, and guess what? Rejection, hostility, and unbelief. And that grows all the way through the Gospel until in chapter 11, they finally hatch a plot to destroy Him and kill Him because they saw Him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they didn't want people to believe on Him. So John chapter 4 sort of stands out as this little... This little gem in John's Gospel where we get a glimpse at belief, not only on a personal scale, but on a sort of a larger scale, a whole city or a whole village comes to him. And in terms of belief and unbelief, this is as good as it gets, John 4. After this, friends, it's just it's downhill. It's hostility, rejection, and impenitence, and hardness of heart. And his confrontation with the Jews all the way through the rest of the Gospel, just you can see it just hardens them. The second thing that I would point out just about John chapter 4 in general, I want you to notice, do you notice that the Samaritans believed, that whole village believed, not based upon anything Jesus did, not based upon the miracles, but based upon what? His word. Do you notice how different that is from the response he got in chapter 2 and 3 with Nicodemus and those in Jerusalem? And how much different this is going to be than the response that he's going to get in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 to the Jews who see his miracles? Those in Samaria believed based not upon the signs and not upon the miracles, but they took him at his word. Friends, that is saving faith. That is salvation. Because it is grace that converts the heart, not a sign, not a miracle. If I could get up and perform a miracle before I preach the gospel, I would have no more response from people, no more genuine response from people than just getting up and preaching the gospel. Why? Because miracles don't convert anybody. Miracles don't change hearts. Grace changes hearts. The Word of God changes hearts. Miracles do not. The Jews, they heard Christ preach for months, months, and they saw the signs at the end of John chapter 2. He was in Jerusalem working miracles in their midst, and they would not believe. They did not reject. They rejected Him. Nicodemus came and he heard His Word. Nicodemus had seen His signs. He had heard Jesus preach. He would probably saw or at least had heard of the cleansing in the temple. And yet he did not believe. Not then, but in Samaria they believed based upon nothing else but His Word. His Word. They took Him at His Word. Miracles don't convert people. The Word of God converts people. The simple Gospel preached and proclaimed is powerful enough to the conversion of the soul that no miracle and no sign is necessary. In fact, later on in the Gospel of John you're going to see that for a lot of those in Jerusalem, the signs that Jesus performed only served to harden their hearts in unbelief. It didn't soften hearts. They saw Lazarus alive after he had died, and they said, we need to kill Jesus, or everybody's going to believe on him. They saw the signs, and what did they do with it? It hardened their heart. 
Only grace and only the word of Christ can soften a heart and bring regeneration. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that you have softened our hearts by your word, that you have brought us to the point of faith in him. We thank you that we are among those who believe, and we look forward to the day when we will be gathered together with your people from all the nations, and even the men and women who are here in Sychar this day that we read about, believing in you, trusting in you, and rejoicing in you. We thank you for the salvation that you have worked, and for the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Glorify yourself, we pray, in the salvation of many people. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.